Turn your copy of God's Word this morning to Isaiah 58. We will begin there. We need silence, don't we? You ever had that reminder, that realization? Our lives are full of chaos, they're full of noise, they're full of clutter. And it's healthy to sit in silence and just sit before the Lord. You know, as a, as a parent, one thing that I've noticed is how often my kids do something and I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. They say something or they do something, and if it's not something that I do currently, it's something I do, did as a kid. And I think, you know, you have that moment where you're thinking, what are they thinking or what are they doing? And then you realize that, you know, the Lord just brings back every moment in your life where you do the same thing, you know, and you kind of chuckle and go, yeah, okay, I know exactly what they're thinking. On the flip side, it seems like more and more I, I do things and you have one of those, you know, like in the movies, the out-of-body experience, you know, where all of a sudden you can see yourself and hear yourself and you think, was that me or my dad? You know, I, I am acting just like my dad in doing that. And that's why I like the progressive commercials that are on TV. Have you seen these? The, the guy is just teaching them how to not become their parents. And the first time we watched it, my kids went, that's a stupid commercial, you know. Well, after that, they laugh because I think they've seen the reality. They're like, I see dad becoming papa. I don't want to become dad in those ways, you know. But we turn to biblical theology, we see the same thing, don't we? We see that we have indeed inherited the sin nature of our federal head, of our father, Adam. We've inherited his sin nature. We've inherited the way he first dealt with sin in blame shifting and pointing the fingers. In Genesis 3, 11 to 13, after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, God comes to them in the garden. He says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What did, what did the man say? Oh, yes, I take full responsibility. I did that. I rebelled against you. He didn't say that. He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. But it wasn't just him. Then the Lord looks to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I mean, from the get-go, we are blame shifters. We are finger pointers. It's everybody's fault but ours. We look to everybody else, and we see this in our culture today. The, the, the problem of our nation is the fault of the liberals. No, it's the fault of the Republicans. No, actually, it's the Democrats' fault. No, it really, it's the independents' fault. No, it's Russia's fault. No, it's our forefathers' fault. No, men are at fault. Women are at fault. Whites are at fault. Blacks are at fault. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Whose fault is it? It's sure not mine. It's somebody out there. We're just doing the same thing that our forefathers did. We're doing the same exact thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. 
And so today we're going to look at Isaiah 58 and 59 because I believe we need to take a look in the mirror. I, I've written on these two passages of Scripture the last two weeks in grace notes, and I just keep coming back to them because I believe God wants us to take a look in the mirror and look at what's going on in our own lives as his people. What responsibility does the church have for the current state of affairs in our nation? I think we have much to learn from these two passages of Scripture. So we have a lot to cover. We're just going to walk through. I can't read all the text, and we can't dig deep into every passage, but I want to just walk through Isaiah 58 and 59, and then we're going to look at four implications for us today. So if you look at Isaiah 58, you heard this in the time of Scripture reading from Pastor Mike, but I want, to just, I want you to hear these verses again. He says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Let it, let it all go, Isaiah. Let it all go. Let it all be bared. I want you to declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. This wasn't a message that Isaiah brought to the nations. This wasn't an, the message that Isaiah said, hey, guys, look at what they're doing. Look at their problems. Look at their sins. No, God says, I want you to declare to my people their sins. Their sins. And he says, listen to what he says. Look at these flag words, these key words. I, I would circle words like these in my Bible if I was you. Verse 2, he says, yet, I circled that and I've got it highlighted in mine. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to me. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Do you see, there's this spiritual disconnect going on here. That the people come and they're acting as if they are just holy and righteous, but yet they are rebelling against God. They are standing in opposition of him. There is inconsistency here. They're, they're acting as though, hey, what, what is the problem, God? I mean, look at how religious we are. Look at how we come for a day of prayer on Wednesday. Look how we've gathered throughout COVID. We come and we still gather and we worship. Look at us, God. Why are you not hearing us? Listen to what he says. Behold, in the day of your fast... You seek your own pleasure. You seek your own pleasure. You, you oppress your workers. You quarrel. He says you fight. You hit. And he says fasting like yours this day will not make the voice, your voice be heard on high. An ungodly fast does not honor God. It doesn't matter how religious we are. If we're consumed with sin, it's not going to honor God. That's not the fast that he chooses. That is not the religion that he set before us. Is go and just look religious, but don't worry about how you truly are living. That does not honor God. We, we get down to verse 6, and he, he gives us a, a glimpse of what does honor him. He says, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? 
It's to, to value life. It's to defend life. It's to care for life. It's to love others, to minister others. God honor, honoring religion is demonstrated, is seen in God honoring living. It's the same thing that James said in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, that our faith should be seen in our works. God's saying the same thing here. But here's another flag word. Verse 8, what does he say? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The glory of God will have your back. The glory of God will have your six. He will protect you. He will watch over you. Then, verse 9, you shall call on the Lord, and he will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noon day. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You will be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You want the blessing of the Lord, then be sincere in your religion. Be sincere in your devotion to Him. Be sincere in what you do for Him. Verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from what? From doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do, do you see what he's saying here in verse 13 and 14? He's calling the people to sincere worship. He's calling them to take the day of the Lord seriously. He's calling them to gather and to come together and to worship Him, but to do so not for their own pleasure, not for what they can get out of it, not to make them feel good, not to be consumed with, hey, I'm going to check this box off and go and worship so that I can spend the rest of the day being, being relaxing and doing whatever I want to do, watching football or watching basketball or reading my favorite book or watching TV or just spending time. No, he's saying come and honor the Lord's day. Turn back your foot from the day of the Sabbath of being just about your own pleasure. Delight in the holy day of the Lord. Not going your own ways, not seeking your own pleasure. Take delight in the Lord. Which brings us to Isaiah 59.1. This statement of truth sandwiched in between some stern calls to repentance from the Lord. Isaiah 59.1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. You see, we're, we're tempted, aren't we? Let, if we're really honest, we're tempted. In the moments we cry out, God, heal our land. God, do a great work in our nation. God, do a great work in our county, in our city, in our church. 
And when that answer doesn't come when we expect it, when that answer doesn't come the way we want it, or when there's just simply it is not answered what we want and what we desire, it doesn't seem to come. And we're tempted in those moments to doubt God for who he is and what he does. Can, can God really do this? Does God really hear? Is he really who he says he is? Can he really intervene? Isaiah 59, 1 says, yes, he is who he says he is. Yes, he can do what he says he will do. But we can't be ignorant of the fact that our sins carry with them consequences. That's what verse 2 says. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sins have consequences. It's it's not God's problem. It's not a problem with his hand being too short and him being bound and not being able to save God. I I just wish I could work in my people's life, but I just can't because my, my hand's just not strong enough. It's just not mighty enough to save them. No, that's not the problem. It's not a problem where, where God's ears are clogged or his ear, his hearing is failing. It's not a problem where he can't hear and he's going, I, I, what was that you said? I just don't know. I just don't know what you said. No, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. The problem was, is with our sin. They have made a separation between us and our God. Our sins have hidden his face from us. Why? Why? What have we done? Verse 3 says, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Our actions and our words are in rebellion to God. Our actions and our words are sinful. It is describing verses 3 through 8. He just starts describing the sinfulness of his people. He says, No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief. They give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. It's just like the spider web. You get up in the morning, and it looks magnificent. It's beautiful. It's so symmetrical. And if you just touch it with your fingers, destroyed. We are crafting these beautiful spider webs. And he says, listen, these webs will not serve as clothing. They will not clothe you or cover you from sin. He goes on to say, he says, their, their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. Instead of running from evil, instead of fleeing from evil, they're running to it. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Does that sound familiar? How swift is our nation to shed innocent blood? How swift? How swift are we to run to evil? We see something evil, we want to see it, we pay money to go watch it. Our feet run to evil. He says their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace, they do not know. 
There's no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Do you see, did you hear how he's approaching this? It's all second and third person accusations, descriptions of what's going on. And then Isaiah turns to confession. What you're about to hear from Isaiah is not second and third person you and they. It's we and us. Listen to what he says. The result. Therefore, there's another flag word. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as if it is the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it's far from us. Why? Here's another word to circle. Why? For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins, they testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. What's the reality that this produces? What does it result in? Verse 14, the reality of the situation is that justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. This is a clear word to the people of God in Isaiah's day. But it sounds an awful lot like our day. Can we not look out upon our land and say justice is turned back? Righteousness stands far away. Truth is stumbled in the public squares. Uprightness, it's like it can't even enter. Truth is lacking. So much so that if you depart from evil, you become prey. And that is our day. That's where we are. That reality is produced in Isaiah's day because justice is far from God's people, righteousness did not overtake them. They groped, they stumbled, they growled, they hoped for justice, but it was not there, and salvation was far from them. Their transgressions multiplied before them. Look, 15b. The Lord saw it. The Lord saw it. 
and it displeased him and there that there was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. God was not unaware of what was going on. God saw it. And just as he saw it then, he sees it now. Our God is a providential God. He's a sovereign God. He's an omniscient God. Omnipresent God. He is there and he is all wise. And he sees everything going on in his creation. And he sees it. And what does it say? Here's a big word, man. I would, I would circle, highlight, star, underline, whatever you want to do. In verse 16, then, what does God do? Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or, or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, for this time forth and forevermore. What, what does God say? God says, look, I see the problem. I see the issue. I see the sins of my people. And I look and there's no man that's going to intercede on my people's behalf. The only solution is what? That by my own right arm, I'm going to bring salvation. And I am going to send a redeemer. A redeemer will come from Zion. Listen, here's the great truth for us today. Is that Isaiah looks forward to this and he says, And a redeemer will come to Zion. You need to know that to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, a redeemer will come. The great truth for us is we're not saying a Redeemer will come to Zion. We're standing here today and we're singing and we're praising. We're shouting hallelujah and we're worshiping because we say and a Redeemer has come out of Zion. He has come. Christ has come. And to those in Jacob, all those who would turn from their transgression, we know the salvation of the Lord. We know that God by his almighty right hand has brought forth salvation. Because Lord knows we could not save ourselves. It was him and him alone that could save us. We needed him by his mighty right hand to bring salvation. Verse 17 through 19 is clear. Sin will not go unpunished. It will indeed be punished. But we know on the cross how that was accomplished. I think there's, there's four implications from these two chapters that we need to take away today. There, there's four things. As I just spent time reading these chapters over the last week and a half that just stood out to me. And I think we need to hear. Here's the first one. Is that we must stop living in sin while expecting God to hear our cries. Th this is... For Grace Baptist Church, this is simply for the church. The, the church in America, we long to see a movement of God in our nation. 
We long to see revival. We long to see the church stand on the solid rock of Christ and declare that Jesus did indeed pay it all. We long to see that day. But if we long to see that day, we have to stop living in sin while expecting God to hear our cries. We have to set aside this spiritual disconnect that we see in Isaiah 58. We have to, we have to get away from that. We have to leave behind this idea that, that we can act religious on Sunday and then just live however we want to through the week. That is not biblical Christianity. If you're living that way, you're living a lie. And you need to repent and turn from that. Well, what does it mean if, if we're going to stop living in sin? Here's a few things that would mean. If we're going to do that, it means that instead of truth stumbling in the public squares like it did in Isaiah 59, 14, that we must stand for and promote biblical truth. We must live it out in the public square, even when it's mocked, even when it's distorted by our leaders and our media outlets. We have to live in truth and for the truth. We have to stand for it. We, we know that John 8, 32, Jesus talks about that if we abide in the word, that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. We know that, that Jesus said that in, in John 18, verse 37, we know that he said he came to do what? To give testimony to the truth. And we're his people. He is the way, the truth, the life, he said in John 14, 6. And as the truth, we are to defend the truth, we're to proclaim the truth. The truth may be distorted, but we must not distort the truth. We must defend it and stand for it. Here's another thing it means. And instead of justice being far from us, as it was in Isaiah 59, 9, and 11, and 14, we must pursue justice. We have to be a people who pursue justice. This means that we pursue biblical justice for those who are wronged. And it doesn't matter their gender. It doesn't matter their mistakes. It doesn't matter what they're living, their color of skin, their socioeconomic standing, their political position. It doesn't matter. We pursue biblical justice. But an important word needs to be said here in our day. We must know this. That justice is not defined by a man-based philosophy. It is not determined by popular movements among athletes and celebrities. It is not delineated by the media machine. And it is not distinguished by our unique cultural context here. No, justice that we stand for is biblical justice. And if you want to know what biblical justice is, then you need to look to justice that arises out of the character of God. It is anchored in the truth of His Word. It aligns with His Word. And it applies to every person in every culture, in every time, in every circumstance. That is biblical justice. And we need to know the difference between biblical justice and man-based, man-driven, man-created justice. We stand for justice, but we must make certain that the justice we stand for is biblical justice. We have to know that. You need to know the difference. You need to be clear on that. Or else justice departs from us. And as a people of God, we can't let that happen. It means that instead of knowing 
of not knowing peace. Isaiah 59, 8. So the people didn't even know peace. No, it means that instead we pursue peace. It means we hear Hebrews 12, 14, and it says strive for peace with everyone. We hear Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We hear the teaching of Matthew 5, 9 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we strive for peace. We long for peace. We proclaim peace. We work towards peace. We're peacemakers. There, there are times where it's not going to happen. But God's word is be- says as, best as, it, as much as it depends on you, be a peacemaker. Strive for peace. We're not those who cause division. We're not those who are causing chaos. But we're those who are known as peacemakers. It also means that instead of righteousness being far away from us, as it was in Isaiah 59, 14, that it means that we live in righteousness. We strive for personal holiness. It means we take serious the words of 1 Peter 1, 16, where God says, be holy for I am holy. We live in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ. The second implication is this, is that we must come to grips with the true problem in front of us. We've got to come to grips with the true problem in front of us. Listen, again, our culture today says a lot about this. It says a lot about the systemic problems in our culture. They're systemic problems. And this systemic problem is by you and you and you and you. It's finger pointing and blame shifting. I would agree. There is a systemic problem in our nation. And it is the same systemic problem that man has faced since Genesis 3. That systemic problem that we wrestle with, that we deal with, that we confront that undermines every aspect of our lives, is sin. Sin is the systemic problem that man faces. It is sin that taints our every word and deed. It is sin that causes abuse. It is sin that causes oppression. It is sin that brings disunity. It is sin that brings fighting and chaos and racism and sexual immorality and societal upheavals. All of those things many of which different people, it just depends on who you would ask, would say, no, this is the problem. No, this is the problem. This is the problem. All those things that people would point at are all fruits of the problem. They're all a result of the problem. The problem is sin. That is the systemic problem. And God's solution to that is the same today as it was in Isaiah 59. That he looks out, he sees, and he sends forth salvation. He sends a redeemer. That's the solution to the systemic problem of sin that we have. It's Christ. He is the solution. God's lone solution is Christ. So if you want to see black and white unified hand in hand, then let those men be redeemed by the same blood of Christ. And you will see it. If you want to see leaders leading in truth and in integrity, then let those leaders be redeemed and saved and sanctified by the blood of Christ. 
and you'll see it. The, the, the problem of sin is only fixed by the blood of Christ. We have to know that. We have to trust that. The third implication is that we must not be silent. We must not be silent. Verse 21 reminds us that God has made a covenant with his people, and he always keeps his covenant. What is it? What, what does he say? Verse 21, he says, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. We must not be silent. We know the word of God. We know the gospel. We know his truth. We must not be silent. What does that mean? It means that when the lives of babies are taken in the name of preference, in the name of choice, in the name of convenience, we aren't silent. We speak out against that. We speak forth the truth and we speak forth the gospel. But it also means that we encounter one who has gone through an abortion and has seen the light and they are reeked with, wrapped with, with grief and, and guilt, that we're not silent. That we speak forth the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God and say there is a God who saves, there's a God who redeems, there's a God who heals Go and sin no more. It means when orphans are neglected and set aside, then we're not silent. We speak on their behalf. We defend them. It means that when the solutions to man's problems are presented in falsehood, we are not silent. It means that when all hope seems to be lost, that we proclaim that hope is found in the Redeemer who came out of Zion. That we are not silent about the fact that hope is not found in erasing history. Hope is not found in a political party or a leader. Hope is not found in changing my sexual identity. It is not found in abandoning moral principles. Hope is found in Christ alone, and we can't be silent about that. We look forward. We look forward to the coming of Christ. We look back on the fact that he's already come once, and he came to bring salvation, and we rejoice in that, and we can't be silent about it. The final implication is that we must look in the mirror before we look out the window. We like looking out windows. Looking in the mirror is not as easy. We have got to look in the mirror before we look out the window. Isaiah 58 and 59 was written to who? The people of God. It was written to the people of God. The people who were supposed to be a light to the nations, yet they were living in sin. It was directed towards those who were supposed to be holy and set apart for God, yet they were living like the world. It was directed to those who were religious, fasting, and taking part in the Sabbath, yet their religion was meaningless. Why? Because it was done for their own pleasure. So we have to look in the mirror. We have to look at ourselves today. Before we look out the window and look at our world and look at our nation, we, we can't be the people sitting back watching the news and pointing out every speck in every person's eye. All the while, we're knocking people over by the log that's sticking out of our own eye. We can't be those people. We have to be the people who look in the mirror and pray what Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know 
my thoughts. See, oh God, see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We have to look in the mirror. And we're going to do that right now. Beth is going to come and just play something on the piano for us. And we're going to take a few minutes today before we close in singing. And we're going to take some time and we're just going to pray. We're going to go before the Lord. We're going to look in the mirror. We're going to pray and ask God, God, search me. God, know my heart. Direct my gaze at me. God, reveal my thoughts. Reveal my actions. Show me if there's any sinful way in me. Show me if there's anything that I am ignorant of, if I'm so focused on what everybody else is doing and saying that I'm missing what I'm doing and saying. God, reveal to me my own sin. This is a time of examination, a time of confession, a time of intercession. We examine ourselves, confess our sins, and pray for our nation. It may be a time in which, for the very first time, you confess your sins and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. A time in which you repent. And ask God to save you. Whatever it is, I want to invite you to bow your heads and to spend the next few moments in prayer.